Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Sunday night, and let me do um, something a little historical, a little different. Uh, I don't have any sponsors yet for... uh, the Parsha, the Haftorah, I hope that'll materialize. But uh, my good friend, Dr. Morris Freeman, is, is, is sponsoring tonight, uh, which has to do with biblical history, because you probably are not aware, unless you look closely in the Shulchan Aruch, that this week um, is one of those days, which are the fasting days. Uh, I saw it in the Belzer Luch myself. I think Tuesday versus Friday, difference of opinion, on one of those days, which it says in chapter 580 in Arachim in the Shulchan Pei, that it was accustomed to fast once upon a time. I mean, it still is, but I don't know anybody who does it. That just means I don't know anybody who does it. So I'll tell you what I mean. You look in the Shulchan Aruch, in the Tafkopei, and it says, There are certain days where misfortunes occurred to the Jewish people. And people should uh, fast on those ca- cases. And he lists a whole bunch. Becha, Benisa, Mesa, Aaron. For example, in the Rosh Chodesh, this is supposed to be the art site of Nadav and Abiyu. This, that, and the other. Um, and one of them, he goes on to say, when he gets close to us, Bashib Marcheshon, Ibrus, Tzikio, Meshach, that King Tzikio of Yehuda was uh, blinded and killed, and all that sort of thing. His children were killed. Uh, on the early in the month of Cheshvan, that was the day to fast. And then it says in the Shulchan Aruch, "Bechav Ches Bekislev Saraf Yehoya came by Megillah Shekosav Bark Mepiremio." That you're referring to a very specific date that you may or may not know, unless you're kind of familiar or expert, whatever, in the Book of Jeremiah, which most people are not. Uh, I don't think most people know Tanakh very well, and certainly if they do. The ones that usually come across are the people who know the narrative books, which is also good. That's good, too. Yeshua Shoftim, Shemuel Malachim, and Divriyam, Daniel, Zunachemia. Not so many people are into Yeshai, Yermi, Yecheskel, and so forth. Um, and it says, on the 28th of Kislev, occurred a certain incident where Yehoiakim, who was the king of Judah, uh, burned a Megillah that, that Baruch wrote at the command of Yermiel. So what the heck is that talking about? What is that talking about? Second of all, what does it got to do with this week? So, if you look in the Berhetev, in the bottom of the Shulchan Aruch, and in other sources, he quotes that even though in the Shulchan Aruch is recorded that this misfortune that we're talking about occurred on the 28th of Kislev, but the Megillah's tainus cause of Meshiva Kislev. Ah! So the Megillah's tainus, the Girsa is, that's this week. I think it's uh, seven days in Kislev is what? Probably Tuesday or something like that. Well, Bahad Kasa and the Baal Halachas Gedolas. These are, these are, um, what do you call it? These are all the the uh, the Onik stuff. They say happened on the eighth day, so it's either Tuesday or Wednesday, Wednesday, Thursday this week. 
whatever it is, I'm not, I have enough energy to get up and look up the dates. But it's coming up this week. You'll look, uh, and in the Kolbo, it says it happened on the 5th. So let's just use our thing now. Uh, Friday would be the 1st. Saturday would be the 2nd. Today, Sunday would be the 3rd. Monday would be the 4th. Tuesday, according to the Kolbo, is the day that this misfortune happened. Uh, that would be the 5th. The 6th and 7th would be Wednesday, Thursday. So either Thursday or Friday. You see what I'm saying? And if I remember correctly... I think in the Bells are Louvre it said, you know, Tuesday or Friday or something like that. So, um, uh, so there you have it. So, in other words, this, and the Al-Yarabba says it, so the, things like the Bells are Louvre and the Sepharim now go with what I said it happened around now, early in the month of Kislev, but not later. Uh, to be perfectly honest, the reason that these halachic commentaries like the Mogan Avram and others talked about it, is because they're bothered not by the historical accuracy of the dates, I don't think that's what motivates them, but rather, they're bothered by the halachic problem of fasting on uh, Hanukkah. You see? If the, if there's such a terrible thing happened late in the month of Kislev, it's already Hanukkah time, and I think everybody's familiar that Hanukkah you're not supposed to fast. That's when the Gilistinus dates are. Days you don't fast, and you don't... Uh, Make a hasbid. Be it as it may, that's interesting from a nitty-gritty, uh, you know, halachic point of view, technical point of view. However, the broad... Well, I hope I didn't lose anything. It requires, as I said, most people aren't familiar with the book of Yumi and it requires a certain amount of historical um, organizing. I'll tell you what I mean. We're dealing with an incident that happened in the time of King Yehoiakim. Probably you don't know who King Yehoiakim was. Uh, he's one of the last kings of the south. Okay? One of the last kings of the south. And um, he was the most wicked of all the kings of Judah. Um, as you can possibly imagine, that's quite a statement. Um, because you had some pretty bad actors in the late period of the kingdom of Yehuda. They were sick dogs. Ochaz. Uh, Menashe, Amon, Yoyakim. That's the four, the gang of four, who are described in Chazal particularly, as well as in the Tanakh itself. They killed all the rabbis, they closed the yeshiva, they burned all the sacred Torahs. I mean, they went nuts. They brought in snows in the base of Migdash, they did this, that, you know, it's beyond, beyond. Which is why when I used to teach in high school, I say the first half of the kings were mostly losers, but the second half, like these guys, were not losers, they're pathological. Because why did somebody get Hano um, out of, uh, you know, uh, going after Judaism, you see? I can understand somebody as a no, he might w- desire to eat a ham sandwich. I can even understand somebody might have desire for Gil Arias. I mean, those are quote-unquote normal desires. But why would you go and try, uh, you know, uh, the guy that was Mazzano with his mother and things like that? And, you know, they were off the wall, burn off. What do you, what, why do you get your kicks out of burning every single Sefer Torah so you can wipe out all knowledge of the Sefer Torahs? Uh, what is that, you see? Or bring in uh, all kind of extra idols into the Kodesh Kodesh. I mean, what's that all about? So there was something pathological going on over here. And here's the thing. Um, you had a, 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 a cycle in which you had good kings, bad kings in the south. This is after the north was exiled by the Assyrians, by Ashur. 
And so you had Ochaz, and, and it was super bad. And then it was followed by Chizkiah, who was super from. And then by Menashe, it was even worse than Ochaz. And Menashe, when he died after 55 years, it's a complicated story, was succeeded by Ammon, who was worse than Menashe. And then his son was Yoshio, who was very good. And then Yoshio had several sons. Yoshio was killed in battle by the Egyptians. And eventually Yoachim came in with the intention to outdo his predecessors in badness. And he did do that. Considering, as I said before, the Amunet was Mazar with his own mother, he had a high bar, or perhaps I should say a low bar, to, to beat how bad they had been. So we had some pretty bad actors over here. Now, that means, and listen closely, that in the time of um, Yoshiyahu, which would be the father of Yoyakam, I know you might get a little bit confused with what I'm saying, but I'm counting on the fact that I'll try and make this clear. And second of all, I do rely that people know a little bit about the Tanakh, a little bit. And uh, these are your late kings in Judah. And uh, there was a king, Josiah Yoshiyahu. And from political point of view, first of all, he was a very from. And he became a BT when he was 16 years old. And eventually he went off the deep end in a from kite direction and tried to get rid of all the idols. He gave it his best shot. That's what that is. Now, in addition to that, uh, he lived in a time of tremendously important political events in the Middle East. The Haino, that there used to be this great empire that dominated Middle Eastern events for a century or two. That's the empire of Ashur, Assyria, not Syria, but A-S-S-Y-R-I-A, Assyria, which was equal to northern Iraq, but the headquarters in Nineveh. And as I say before, they had the biggest and best army, and they were pretty ferocious, and they perpetrated all kind of holocausts and boast about it. Uh, one of the places I plan to go, Mir Hashem, when we go in January in my Israel trip, is Alachish, which is a battleground from the Assyrian Wars, in which they did some pretty bad stuff to the Jews. Uh, it's remarkable what's left over over there. It's like visiting the uh, Jewish Gettysburg, shall we say, or something like that. And uh, we have a nice trip uh, organized. Uh, so that meant that this great empire of Ashur all of a sudden disappeared. In a way that you and I, if you're uh, old enough to remember the, uh, if you're in your 40s, let's say, if you're old enough to remember the collapse of the Soviet Union, all of a sudden overnight, it, it, an empire crumbled and disappeared. Until 1988-89 was the Soviet Empire, and all of a sudden there wasn't. So, and it's had huge consequences. Territories that were not, you know, they were under Russian domination, all of a sudden were not. Now, of course, Putin's trying to get some of that back, and that's the whole fight in Europe. But for a long time, the Russians ruled the roost, and then they didn't. So in Ashur also, in a somewhat different way, they ruled everything. So listen closely. 50% of Eretz Yisrael, or maybe more, more actually, was owned by Ashur. In other words, if you were the king of Yehuda, that's a small area. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just Google the kingdom of Judah, and you'll see it's not large. It's basically Yerushalayim in 30, 40, 50 miles in each direction, something like that, less actually. The rest of Eretz Yisrael, the Eber Yardin, what today you call Samaria, the Galilee, was was uh, owned by the kingdom of Ashur, Empire of Ashur. And there was nothing that Jews and Yehuda could do about it. They were glad that they had somehow or other escaped that fate. So, if you were King Yoshiahu, as your predecessors had been, you simply lived next door to the bear. 
the way Finland next, lived next door to the Soviet Union. You live next door to Asher, and you hope they don't eat you up. Shine. And then, during the time of Yoshio, which I think he attributed to you know, becoming a BT, all of a sudden, that disappeared. The Emperor of Asher disintegrated. And this enabled King Yoshio, if you read the books of the Bible closely, to take his army and come over and take over the kingdom of the north, the territories of the twelve tribes, because there was no real opposition, the Assyrian army crumbled and disappeared. And so the only army around was that of King Yehuda, and consequently Yoshioho was able to reassert Jewish control in some fashion, although we don't have the details, over the territory that used to belong to all twelve tribes. He didn't bring back the twelve tribes, although there is a Chazal that says he did, but let's go Pashtas, right, without getting into that. He didn't bring back the 12 tribes, but nevertheless, the king of Yehud itself, which Yehud ben Yamin, they took over in some fashion the territories of the Shomron, the Galilee, and uh, the Avariyarim. Something, something like that. Okay? However, power abhors a vacuum, and when the empire of Assyria uh, collapsed, so... When the Empire of Syria collapsed, so who takes over? Now, you and I now are living in a strange time that the Soviet Union collapsed. The United States, theoretically, could have mobilized all its power and try to take over all the other territories. In a certain weird way, it sort of has, and that's what drives Putin crazy. So, Lamushal, all the states of Eastern Europe, uh, Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, now Finland and Sweden even, Romania, Hungary, Czech Republic, all this business, they want to kiss up to America. Now, the truth is, because America, they're afraid of Russia coming back in, and America doesn't actually dominate them. You know, you know, you know what I'm saying? We don't occupy them with soldiers, all the rest of it. America kind of stands for democracy, so from the point of view of American national interests, as long as they're not controlled by Russia, that's fine. This drives Putin crazy, and as you know, he would like to take it all back. He started with Ukraine. He figured that he would run over the Ukraine in five minutes. And if he had done so, I, I believe, although I wouldn't have said this a year ago, but I see now that he would then try to take over the rest of the stuff little by little. And then he would be the next Stalin. You know, he, he reconquered what the Russians lost. Now, he got a bloody nose in the Ukraine so far. Nobody knows what the future is. So it hasn't quite happened that way. So I say that to transpose you back 3,000 years or 26, 2,700 years, uh, really around the year 600 BCE, approximately, uh, when all this happened. And again, 600 BCE. Uh, and there it was different. It wasn't so much that he let countries be uh, on their own. Sort of they did. But the question is, who's going to be a top dog? Who's going to dominate? So, to use modern terminology, after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the uh, communist bloc in Europe, the U.S. became the dominant power. Um, China would like to be a dominant power, and that complicates the story. And there you have your international politics. In the old days, when... Ashur disintegrated. So the question is, who's going to be the top dog in the Middle East? Which country is going to become the imperial one, 
that the others all have to kiss up to, kiss the rear end. So the two contenders were Bavel on the one hand, southern Iraq, and Mitzrayim. Those are the two. Um, each one was fairly powerful. As we shall see, Bubble was stronger. And each one appealed to the nations of the Middle East to come under my wings. So let me dominate you, because the bottom line is, you have to join either the American side or the Russian side, so to speak. Either you join the, the Egyptian side or the, or the Babylonian side. And this was the great foreign policy challenge during the time of Yirmiyahu Anobi, during the last years of the kingdom of Yehuda. Now, Yirmiyahu was very much a Navi, first of all, and therefore a political realist. And the message from Hashem that he conveyed all the time was, don't hook up with Egypt, hook up with Boal. Get it? No, it's either way, you're going to be subservient to some superpower. On the other hand, they won't take away the base of Megiddo, kick you off your land. And so it's like Israel today. Israel is an independent country, but not really. Right? I mean, if America really, 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 really wants Israel to do something, they'll do it. Uh, you know, otherwise they cut off the money. So this is this is the reality of, of, of power. Now, in the case we're talking about, Yoshiyahu was the king, and he had to decide which side the king should side with. He screwed up, and by the time it's all over, he was killed in battle with the Egyptians, which he didn't need to do. So when Yoshiyahu uh, was killed, which was a big tragedy, you do that on Tishabov. So he had several sons, many of them were killed in battle, and the Egyptians who defeated him put one of his sons as their stooge to be the next king, Yoachaz. But it didn't last long. And instead, another brother, another is the son of Yoshiahu, became the king. That's El Yakim, who called himself Yehoyakim. That's how he became the king. Uh, so he was put into power by the Egyptians, so to speak, under the Egyptian um, control. So therefore, he had sympathies towards Mitzrayim which was the wrong country to have sympathies with, what I just said is the big message of the book of Yirmiyahu. Don't rely on Egypt. Egypt will always screw you. There'll always be a Mishenis Konoratsis. They'll tell you, rely on me. I'll be there, help you in the battle. They won't show up and things like that. So this was the situation. Now, um, in the event, the Egyptian army faced the Babylonian army and had a gigantic battle, and the uh, Egyptians lost. So it was clear from that point of view that if you want to side with the stronger country, uh, kiss up to them, uh, it's going to be bubble. I'll give you a little bit of an example I'm talking about now. The state of Israel, especially under Bibi, but also under uh, Bennett, did not condemn Russia for invading uh, Ukraine, not really. And if you remember, Bennett went there every five minutes to talk to um, Putin. And now Bibi's going to do that, I'm sure, also. And I don't blame them because Russia is a very powerful country. If you get on the wrong side, they'll back the Syrians and the others to the hilt, and Israel will get hurt. I don't know what will be the final result, whether the Russians will screw Israel anyway. You never know. But at least they have to give it the old school try. And Israel is always the state of Israel is always trying to convey to the Russians, we're not anti-Russian, therefore don't be anti-Israel. You see, it's a very complicated, very interesting thing to watch. So in the book of Yirmiyahu, if you look at chapter 46, uh, he says, this in Yermio, that he is a prophet, and even though there was no uh, CNN or YouTube, 
but as a prophet he can see the battle raging far away between the Egyptian army and the Babylonian army. And he says, That's the point I want to get across. That this is something that takes place in the fourth year, this battle, in the fourth year of King Jehoiakim. Right? The climactic battle between the two people, two sides, who should be the superpower. Because our uh, thing in the Shulchan Aruch is going to have to do with the aftermath of that. Okay? And uh, in English, it is about Mitzrayim, the army of Pharaoh Necho, when he marched up to the Euphrates River at Karkamish, that's where they had the battle. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, defeated them in the fourth year of Yehoiakim. And he can see this, and he says, Irchu Mogain, Betzina, Gshum Mochama, Isra Susim, Valu Prashim, Betziatza Bakovavim, Mirko Ramachim, Lusha Sayunas. In other words, get your weapons on, arrange your shields and bucklers, advance for battle, harness the horses, mount your battle stations, put on your helmets, polish your spears, put on your armor. He's talking to the, mockingly to the Egyptians, because you're going to get your, your head handed to you. Right? But really it's going to be a day of Nekama for Hashem, he doesn't like Egypt. And it's going to be mamish a uh, what's the right word? Um, why do I see the Egyptians trembling and retreating? Soldiers are cut to pieces. They flee quickly and don't turn back. There's terror all around and they can't survive and so on and so forth. Right? It's a whole psukim in Memvav about the defeat of the Egyptian army and therefore, he's implying, Yirmiyahu, don't team up with Egypt. They're losers, literally losers. You get it? Literally losers. And, again, you have to move around the book of Yirmiyahu. It's not so easy to do this unless you're familiar with the Bible. I'm sorry to say that because most of you guys don't know Tanakh. But uh, but that's how it goes. And if you switch back, because things they muk the mukha, you know what I mean? In other words, they're out, kind of out of order. So if you go back to chapter 25... Okay, so um, he says over there, let's see. You hear what I just said? The fourth year of Yo-Yo-Kim, that's when the Egyptians were destroyed by the Babylonians. And here's a Nebuah. That was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar conquering and he, what do you call it? This is a Nevoa that he made uh, over the whole, um, you know, uh, kingdom of Yehuda. And what's he saying over here? He's saying like here, from the 13th year of Yoshiahu to this day, it's 23 years, God's word has come to me, and I keep constantly speaking and listen. So I've been giving you advice, as Nevoa actually, about foreign policy and you never listen. Okay? You never listen. And, um, Vadabre lechem ashkim, Vadabre veloshimatem. You understand? Veloshimatem. And he goes on and he says, Don't worship other gods, and this and that and the other. And therefore, Heni shalech velakakti is called Mishmachos Tzafon, Vesnebuchanezer Melch Babra Avdi. I'm going to bring a gigantic army from the north from Babel in the hands of Nebuchanezer, who's going to be my Evid Hashem says, my instrument. 
I'll bring him down here to your area of the Middle East. Israel, Judah, Moab, Ammon, and all that stuff. I'll wipe, wipe everybody out. The whole territory of Israel, Palestine, Gaza Strip, and I'll be wiped out. Notice it's the reverse. I'll wipe out. They won't hear anymore. And you'll have to serve the king of Babel in exile for 70 years. And then after 70 years, you'll come back. So in other words, all this was being foretold long before it actually happened. And it all took place in that fateful fourth year of King Yehoiakim. You get it? King Yehoiakim. Now, um, here comes the thing. The king didn't listen, because I told you before, he was, the Chazal explained how he was even worse than the others. And so, Hashem uh, says the following. This will take us to chapter 36, I think. Yep. So now, so I'm giving you a guide how to look through all this in a um, chronological type fashion, without going through deep, Mepharshim and Rashi and all the other stuff. Get Pashub Shat. Okay? Pashub Shat. And then you'll see if you can figure it out. So it says, Vahi Bashanash, beginning of Lamed Vav. These are not half Torahs, by the way. Vahi Bashanar Vias, but you'll yakam in Yoshi. On that fourth year, Hashem told Yermio, meaning after the defeat of the Egyptian army and the warning by Yermio not to team up with Egypt and the king not listening to that, and then the other warning that Baba will come and wipe everybody out and carry off in exile. And the king not listening to that. So, Hashem says, get a book uh, to write down on. And write a summary, basically. Right? Write a summary of everything I've told you to do uh, ever since the time of Yoshio. Meaning, all the foreign policy advice I've given you, which is stay away from Egypt, Summarize it in a in, in a book form, in a Megillah form, like in in a scroll. Okay, Ula Yishmu Beis Yehuda is called Rosh Anuki Hashem. Maybe the King of Yehuda will finally listen to the bad stuff that's coming down the line. Laman Yeshuvi Shdarka Rovus Alachim Adachem. Maybe he'll do Chuba and I'll forgive him. Now you and I know it didn't happen, but that's that's what it says. Vayikra Yirmiyah Baruch Ben Yirmiyah. So Yirmiyah called his student Baruch. And he dictated to him a nusach, which combined all the previous nevuas concerning foreign policy. And Yermiel told Baruch as follows, Ani Otsur, okay, I'm in jail, meaning he was in hiding. I cannot come um, to Beis Hashem, to Beis Hamikdash. There are some who say that, uh, what do you call it? Uh, you know, um, there were halachic reasons for this. It doesn't matter. So I can't go to base in English. You read it. So I want you to go to base in English and read aloud these words in the Megill that I'm writing for you and freak them out. Aha! And go and uh, read this on the Yom Tzom. Now, why on the Yom Tzom? Why was there a fast day? The God mostly a boy Maram Tikram. 
and all the people who are showing up at the base of Mikdash from the king of Yehuda for a public fast day, uh, read it to them. Why would there be a Yom Tom? So here's the inter- <coughs> interesting part. One of the things that happened, <coughs> excuse me, one of the things that happened was that, as you'll see in a minute, that Yehoiakim heard that Nebuchadnezzar defeated the Egyptians, and Nebuchadnezzar is now marching south to bust everybody who had been allied with Egypt, in which case you have a Corbin coming in your direction from an avenging Babylonian army. And, and in fact, they heard that Nebuchadnezzar reached the Gaza Strip and wiped out Ashkelon and so forth. And so in Yerushalayim, they freaked out, and they proclaimed a fast day. Now, mind you, Yo-Yo-Kim was a big sinner, but he proclaimed a fast day, which, by the way, was in the month of Kislev, so it fits in the Kodesh HaShi, so it fits perfectly with what we're, the fact that we're having this date now, as you'll see in a second. And um, and the idea was that they should pray to whoever they're going to pray to. Now, if it's if it's uh, Yo-Yo-Kim, it's not going to be Tashem, uh, to keep the Babylonian army away and don't attack Jerusalem. So our hero, uh, uh, Yermio, is sort of like taking advantage of this and says, no, I'm, you're going to have uh, a whole crowd there read the real message, which is not the Yoyakim propaganda, but the stuff from Hashem. Maybe they'll become from. Because God is pretty angry. You know, he's, his temper is about to blow. So in other words, Yirmiyahu, the prophet, told his student Baruch to write up a scroll and, and proclaim it out loud in the base of Migdash. So Baruch followed the commandment to um, go and read this very unpopular declaration, which says you're, you're all following the wrong thing. Don't side with Egypt, side with Babel, stop worshiping idols, you're all wrong, the king is bad. So he read it out loud. He took his life in his hands. And not long afterwards, in the month of Kislev, he says, in the fifth year, I say they announced a big uh, fast day because they're afraid of... Um, I mean, Rashi here says, Okay, they're afraid Nebuchadnezzar was coming. Uh, and he says, so it was dealer's choice. Everybody should fast. If you're from, you fast Hashem. If you're not from, you fast Avodazar. That's who what was going on in those days. And Baruch, it says, went ahead and read this in a certain place. And what happened was one of the royal officials heard this. And he said, uh-oh, this sounds like trouble. It's a little bit like in Iran now that they're challenging the government. He ran right away to the palace and he went down to where the royal cabinet members were sitting. The royal cabinet was Eli Shama Sofer and Lubin Shmaya, El Nasser ben Akbar, Gemari ben Shafan, Tiki ben Hanan ben Chol Asarim. the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, Secretary of the Treasury. Vayagel Mechios called one male Sheshamaya. And he said, There's this guy proclaiming a scroll which is saying seditious things in the base of Migdash. And they immediately sent to this to Baruch to come to them. They said, Take this Megillah that you were reading and bring it with you. And he brought it there. And they said, 
read to us what you just said out loud there, and Baruch did so. Like Shammah Samaria, when they heard the words of the Megillah, which says the king's going to go down the drain, the king's going to go down the drain, you're backing the wrong side, you're all over the Zorah, Hashem is angry at you, etc., etc., etc. Pachdu They got real scared, the cabinet members, because they figured the king would freak out. I mean, do you really want us to tell the king what you said? Did you write this yourself? And Baruch said, No. I wrote it verbatim from the prophet Yermio. Which was the truth. Now, here's the interesting thing. These guys were members, as I said before, of the royal cabinet, right? They were not as wicked as the king. And they didn't want to kill a prophet and all that sort of thing if they could get away with it. This is often the way it is. The main guy was the super dictator, Yoyakum, the Russian Marusha. They were just members of the cabinet. And they basically said like this, Are you nuts? Okay? Are you nuts? Lechi saucer atavir Go and hide for your lives. Don't let anybody know where you are. Because we're going to read this to the king. He's going to blow a gut, order your death. And so we're telling you we're on your side. Hide now. So here comes the incident that we have the fast day for. So they went to the king in a chaser. Now I repeat, this is in Kislev. So you and I know it's in the month of December in Jerusalem. I think most of the listeners of the podcast, if not everybody knows how cold and windy it is in Yerushalayim, in the month of Kislev. Okay, and the king was sitting in the palace, but in other words, they didn't have central heating. They had no heating, uh, as you know. Um, and they put this scroll with the writing on it in a certain room of Elishama. They told the king, they reported to him what had happened. And the king ordered the scroll be brought to him. By a guy whose name was Yehudi. He used to be Yehudi Menuhin, you know? There's a name called Yehudi, get it? Notice, you could give a kid a name Yehudi Schwartz and it would be a biblical name. What's his name would be okay with it? Chaim Kanyevsky, you know? It's, it's, a, it's a biblical name. Anyway, so this guy Yehudi went. And so this official of the king, whose name was Yehudi, read the Megillah that Yermia had dictated and Baruch had written down. Okay. The king was in a Beisachorif, which means in a room that was like a winter palace, the Hainu, it's got some sort of heating. As we'll see in a second, the heating it had had like a brazier. So if you're richy rich in those days, uh, which a king is, of course, you have your own little private, uh, looks like a dish. Uh, what should I say? Looks like a miniature grill, I would say. Imagine like a miniature round grill standing, you know, high enough on uh, legs and, uh, you know, has coals in it or wood or anything like that. And so it's a cold day. The only way to keep warm is you put your hands there if you want to toast some marshmallows or some hot dogs or something like that, whatever you want to do in those days. And uh, the king was sitting there. It's and the little brazier, that little grill was of you know, burning away, because he's a king, he can afford it. You know, we have Hanukkah coming down the line, and we all know Hanukkah, you have to light the candles, 
But really, Neri Shabesa, all you need is one candle. It could be from the junkiest junk. Even uh, wicks and, uh, um, uh, um, you know, oils, fuels that are not good for Shabbos are okay for, for Hanukkah. Because when they impose the din of Hanukkah, you have to have lights that really hit the poor people in the pocket. You have no idea how poor people were. Long ago, when it said sunset, you went to sleep. That's all. Nobody, we live in a different world today. Here I am doing a podcast in a lit room at the, what, 9.30 at night or something like that. Uh, that wouldn't have happened, you see? But if you're a king, it's a different story. So the king, in order to show his um, contempt for the uh, words of Hashem, the words of the prophet, which were the opposite of what he wanted to hear. So after the guy would read three or four paragraphs or lines or whatever from it, he grew up a tarasopher. The king had like a little pen knife. And he said, let me see that. So let's say he read the first four lines. So the king says, let me see that. And he used the pen knife to cut after the fourth line. And he tossed it in the fire. So I can use it now for fuel. And he went that way all through the whole Megillah. So basically, he said, why should I get coal or something like this? Yermio is giving me a, a, a fuel, which means it's the ultimate contempt. You get it's not just a lack of respect. You're burning the word of Hashem in a contemptuous way. And for all I know, the guy was taka toasting, you know what I mean, a hot dog or something like that. So I'm glad you give me... Imagine today, a, a modern example would be, someone would take a Sefer Torah and cut it up and use it, as they say, for fuel or things like this. Now, the Nazis did do this. And the Khmelnytsky guys did do this. And in certain places in Eastern Europe, they did do this. But the Taka did it as, as a gesture of contempt. You see? So, here's a Jew to Jew. This is the first time it happened that a guy would take a Tevra Torah and use it as a fuel or something like that. In this case, it wasn't a Torah. It was a Megillah written by... But it was a real Vua, okay? Uh, until he burned the whole thing up, and they were so scared of this king, the tyrant, Yoyakim, that they weren't afraid to do it, and they didn't do Kriya, because when you tear the word of Hashem, it's like tearing the same return, you, you, you have to write Kriya, and they didn't do it. Uh, none of them uh, did that. Now, to be fair, they didn't do Kriya, but they did beg the king not to do this. He didn't listen. But You understand? The, the officers of the this cabinet secretaries begged the king, don't do this. No, you're pushing it too far. Uh, you know, it's bad enough. You're reading Trefa and all the rest of it. Don't spit in the face of Hashem, so to speak. That's bad luck. And he didn't listen to them. Baitzava Melch is Rachmiel ben Amelch, Yerachmiel ben Amelch, Vesroy ben Azari, Veshlemi ben Avdel, and he ordered his officials, like we would say today, the head of the FBI and the head of the state police, Lakachas Baruch Hashem Vizir Menovi, Leistim Hashem, and what he called, you know, to arrest Yermio, but God hid them; they the police couldn't find him. Vayidvar Hashem LeYermiach Achri Sofa Melch Zemagilah. And after this incident, Hashem said, write another copy, that's all. Heck with the king. 
שוב ככה מגיל אחרס. לקסובלס, הדברים הראשונים, שוב מגיל ראשונו, right? In other words, let's put it this way, you know, he erased only one copy, make another copy. While you'll yuck a milk, you'll tell Mary and tell the king, you burned this Megillah, which says that the Babylonians are going to come and wipe out the country. devastate the country to kill all the people and the animals, which happened later. You are going, you, Yoyakim, will not have any successors. And your carcass will be thrown out in the streets, not buried, to be exposed to the heat in the day and the, and the freezing at night. You know, and Yermio did it, okay? Yermio did it. In fact, he expanded it. You know what I'm saying? He expanded it. Now, Chazal have a whole tradition that it's Identical with Miguel Seichan. I don't want to go there. It's a, the Pashup shot is that he gave him a warning that you're going in the wrong derech, and the king respond to it like a Nazi. He said, "Use the, the 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 paper for you know for for like for tobacco for for burning for you know um, toasting uh, marshmallows, toasting hot dogs, things like that." So this was therefore in many uh, um, in many aspects. A great, uh, terrible act uh, that a king should mamish spit in the face of Hashem, so to speak. Uh, this is a little bit, um, you know, over the top, and therefore it entered into the collective Jewish memory, thanks to the Chazal. And they said every year when it comes to this date, which, as I told you before, it's not so clear, but according to the Kolbo, it would be this Tuesday, for example, as the Berhiktiv tells us, and according to others, it's later this week. Uh, they said that you should fast on that day. Now I'm not telling everybody to go fast, but it's a famous, um, perhaps I should say a notorious and infamous date in Jewish history. And sometimes we have people who are not just not from, but so anti-from that they're prepared to do to Jewish stuff what the Nazis did happily to Jewish stuff. And, um, and therefore it reminds us that one of the worst things you can have in Jewish leadership is to be stubborn. Get it? You know, if a person says, listen, I gave in to my tithes, and, you know, and nobody's perfect, and I made a mistake here and there and the other, but asher nosi yechto, like it says in the Chumash, sometimes the nosi will say, I made a mistake, and there's a certain carbon you bring and all the rest of it. So that's not so bad. But when, as is the case usually with politicians, I'm never wrong, everything I did is right, and, uh, you know, it's impossible for me to make a mistake, Especially if you're like Yehoyakim, who was out to outdo in wickedness his predecessors Achaz and Menashe and Amon, then the result was catastrophe. Because what might happen a few years later, skipping the details, uh, Yehoyakim was captured by the Babylonians. He had the he was dragged, you know, like in the movies, they dragged him along by the horse tail. You know what I mean? Through through the uh, street. You know, they tied him up to the end of the horse and they dragged him along. And therefore he died this horrible way. And then they threw him without burying him. He had a kavuras chamor, as they called it. Buried like a dead donkey. And his son took over and three months, uh, the, you know, surrendered. And then Tzikio came in with a few years. The whole base of Megish was destroyed. 
the king Yehuda was devastated. All the Jews were kicked out of Israel. It was a catastrophe of the first order, what you and I call Tisha B'Av. The origins of the Tisha B'Av are what happened on this day. So anyway, I thought I would um, share this uh, with our audience. And uh, once again, I want to thank Dr. Morris Friedman over here, who uh, very nicely is, um, you know, sponsoring today, as he says, in honor of all the common sense, knowledge, and enthusiasm we spread through the podcast. That's very nice. Um, and with that, I'll say again, I'm looking this week, somebody shall, will step forward to uh, sponsor the um, the Parsha, which is by Yetzin and the Haftorah. Um, and with that, I bid you a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.